Hey there, welcome to episode 52 of the Gig Loft Podcast. I'm your host Stevie Taylor. I'm very happy to see you here today and uh, thank you for being here. Now, before we kick off the episode, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors. Nah, just kidding, we don't actually have any sponsors yet. But would you like to be a sponsor? If you have a related product or service um, that you'd like to reach hundreds of unique listeners per week, hit me up, send me a message on the socials, shoot me an email to thegiglifepodcast at gmail.com or via the contact page on the website, which is www.thegiglifepodcast.com. Anyways, on with the show. My guest today is Bobby Poulton. Bobby is a bass player from Sydney who's currently playing with Dami M and is also a part of Frankie's world-famous house band. Now, some of his previous gigs are The Widow Birds, Battlesnake, Gilby Clark, Jason Owen, Reese Maston, Peter Northcote, the Sony Music All-Stars, that's just to name a few. Bobby was also a guest on the Gig Life podcast, Bass Players Roundtable, which we did um, a couple of months back. Um, but it was really cool to get him back in here one-on-one into the studio where we talked about his current gigs, um, past gigs, his upbringing, bases, gear, streaming services, singing, and, and much, much more. So now's the time to sit back and get comfortable. Now, if you're driving, wind down the window and turn it up so the car next to you can hear while I make this introduction. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Bobby Poulton. Cheers. I think we're rolling. Bobby Poulton, welcome back to the Good Thank Life you. Podcast. Thank you, Stevie. Mate, um, for people that don't know, Bobby was here for the Gig Life Podcast Bass Players Roundtable. Um, and if you listened to that first episode, you would have heard that there was a systems malfunction for the first half hour of that. And a lot of that was actually Bobby talking a bit about the start of his career. So I felt a bit bummed out that... <laughs> <laughs> that we lost all that, so it's uh, good to have yes. you back here, and we can we can talk about that stuff again. You know, well, thank you for um, inviting me on. I no, really appreciate it. Man, sweet air. So, um, what have you been up to? It's, we usually start it with what you're kind of up to now, and then we'll we'll roll it back. Yeah, uh, I am just about to do a national tour with Dami M. Uh, that is going to be almost every weekend from, uh, you know, the beginning of August until the middle of November. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's... See, fly in, fly out type thing. Yeah. Doing the, so it's, the big towns and, and... There's a lot of, there's a lot of regional well. as oh, great. well. Awesome. But yeah, I mean, that's a, that's going to be just all over. It's mainly in New South Wales, actually. But okay. there's, we'll spend a couple of weekends out of town as well, 
you know, hitting the Perth and uh, Brisbane and Melbourne. But right. yeah, it's mainly in New South Wales. Right. So what's that? What does that show entail? Well, I don't actually know all of that yet because oh, cool. we're going into rehearsals for that next week. Okay, cool. Awesome. So I have toured with her previously. Yep. And the previous tour was uh, on the back of a Carpenters album that she had just recorded. Right. And uh, that was – so that was mainly Carpenters material and that was just amazing because, of course, the Carpenters is just such amazing songs. And uh, But, yeah, this next tour I think is going to be much more of her originals and it's going to be much more like a pop-focused show. Correct me if I'm wrong. She was on X Factor? Correct. Right. And how long ago was that? I am guessing. Yep. 2013. Okay, cool. I actually don't watch television. So right, right. Yes, I, I – Yeah, we don't watch a lot of commercial TV. Yeah. Yeah. When uh, The way I – the way I came into that gig was that I had a, a, a message from uh, Michael Tan, who is her musical director, mm-hmm. and he said, how is it that we've got 600 mutual friends on Facebook, but we've never actually done a gig together? Right. And, you know, we were kind of – and he, he said, can you come by the studio? And I was like, oh, okay. So I drive over to King's Cross where uh, Michael Tan's studio is, and he says, look, I've got this tour – it's with Adami M. Do you know who she is? And I was like, um, no, sorry. And he said to me, uh, well, can you, I've, I need a band who can sing. Uh, do you sing? And I was like, yes, I, I do sing. And he said, well, it's going to be mainly Carpenter's material. Um, so there's going to be a lot of like quite large harmony stacks and all that mm. kind of thing. Do you think you can do that? And I was like, absolutely. That's no problem whatsoever. Um, and, so we would we were talking about all kinds of things that were going on at the day, and so politics and all this kind of thing, and we we really sort of hit it off, and that was before uh, she actually had uh, was selected as Australia's representative for the Eurovision Song Contest, right. which she went on to do extremely well yep. in. She yep. came second in in the year that she was there. So yep. yeah, I mean that was. Once that happened, the whole tour sold out. And we ended up doing about 70 shows or something. Like right. it was a huge tour. That's awesome. And, um, of course, most people probably know um, you've been doing Frankie's. Yes. Frankie's. Um, the world famous house, house band. House band. Sorry about that. I'm going blank. No, no, um, that's it. It's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, no, that's been yeah. going for six and a half years. Now, I, that's am I, am I right by saying that's the longest running Rock residency in Australia? The one that's certainly the longest running one that's currently going. As right. far as I'm aware, right. I think we are the longest running residency that has stayed in one venue in Australia or in Sydney at the moment. Maybe oh. not Australia, I'm not sure. But okay, cool. certainly we're the longest running residency that has stayed at one venue in, in Sydney. That's bloody impressive. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, hats off to Frankie's, eh? Still going, still going strong. I had um, Dave Ferry on the show um, ah yeah, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. he sort of spoke of how it c- kind of came about, and and um, yeah, a little bit the ins and outs of it, and yeah, it's cool, man. Yeah, no, yeah. it's such a. I mean, that is really the the place where uh, I just get to play something that's completely different to everything else that's out there, right? I guess. I mean, that's right. its real point of difference. It really is a, a rock and roll venue, right? And there, you know, there are places where you can play. Uh, you know, very standard rock covers in general sort of 
pub gigs or whatever. But at that place, you can really de- do a deep dive into mm. the back catalogues of artists that Whatever you wouldn't you, want. you wouldn't get to play anywhere else. Mm. And so, so, so when you're selecting um, the material for the coming week, or you know you've got your up and coming guests, do you have to run that past anybody, or that's on you guys to? No, no, it. It's you know just what I'm saying? Eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, no, that's cool. No, we we we're self curating. Uh, uh, our our guitarist Joel, he is uh, he's a bit disconnected from the professional music scene in this in the sense that he doesn't really do like you know the standard cover gigs. So as a result, if there's something which uh, lacks a bit of authenticity or credibility, he's the first one to say no. Let's not do that song or right. whatever. And it's actually really quite fun when we. When I have done gigs with him that are sort of a bit more standard cover gigs, because someone the singer will call a song and he's just like, "I'm not doing that," <laughs> and and you know it really is kind of like he just he's not that guy who he he's a really you know like authentic rock and roller and awesome. so yeah that's cool way eh? yeah oh, it it really does set it apart it really does right so um I've always sort of seen you as the rock guy I don't know much about. Um, what you've done before that or, or, or what else do you do really? And that's that's why we're here today and you're going yeah. to explain it. So how about we start rolling back okay. to the early days? And, um, were you originally from Sydney? Yeah. Okay. I, I grew up I grew up very close to where I live right now, which is in uh, Sydney's northern beaches. Yep. I, uh, when I was very young, I used to take classical piano classes mm-hmm. and I hated them. Yep. I really disliked them. Um, when I got into high school, it was my first opportunity to kind of branch away from classical music because there was a, uh, there was a a jazz band for, you know, the people who had just entered high school. And so I joined that, but much to my chagrin, the, there were two other piano players who joined the exact same band. So, which meant that I either could play one in every three tunes, which I didn't like, or I was given one third of the piano to play, which <laughs> was awful. Right. And so the the teacher uh, was the guy who played bass. And I went up to him after oh, a couple of weeks and just said, looked at him and I said, can I play that instead, pointing at his bass guitar? And he looked at me and was like, you will have to get lessons. And I was like, yes, that's fine. Just can I play this instead? Right. And so he ended up teaching me. He uh, His uh, name is Saul Richardson. I believe that you spoke to Dan about Saul Richardson, uh, but he was the uh, uh, the guy who took. Uh, See the guy in Saint Leonard's. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I do remember. So he's Dan currently, yeah, he's yeah. currently the owner of Jazz Workshop Australia, which right. is a they do the the jazz youth, uh, the Australian Jazz Youth Orchestra, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he's Saul Richardson has gone on to become an excellent, like you know, jazz teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he. I mean, he was at the time, but he's just gone on to such larger and better things, I guess. Mm. Um, I started playing bass from that moment and I, uh, and I learned to play the bass by playing jazz music. So it was playing big band jazz and small band jazz. Um, you know, I used to... Only electric? Were you playing upright? No, Did you learn upright? Not, not upright at that point. Oh, I, okay. I picked we'll up upright, yep. upright later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it was just electric bass. I, um, I actually had always... I kind of always wanted to play the electric bass. Uh, the first time I became aware of electric bass, and I said this at the uh, at the uh, bass roundtable, 
was there was a television show back in the early 90s called Gladiators. Yep. See, nobody would have heard this because this is the part That's right, where we had yeah. the equipment malfunction and um, so – you're hearing this for the first time. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, yeah, the TV show. Gladiators, that's right. I remember now. Yeah, yeah, and that was a, some. It was a ridiculous te- television show, but I do remember when the contestants got knocked off the the porch, the perch, or whatever. If they got knocked off, they would play another one. Bites the dust by Queen, and I remember at the time just thinking that is the coolest sound I've ever heard. And of course, it's that iconic John Deacon bassline. Dom, dom. Dom, you know, and it's it was absolutely magic. And so from that sort of point on, I was I was I was kind of always set on the bass guitar as something that I'd always wanted to get into. But uh, I don't know. I didn't really feel like at the when I was that age, I could just ask my parents if I could play bass guitar for some reason. But you know, obviously, once I did in high school, they were very happy to let me do so. So yeah, that was. So what was that? What was holding you back? I don't know. I think I was just like, oh, I'm a piano player. I just kind of, oh, right. I just kind of self-identified as, okay, a, as cool. a piano player, and that right. was kind of limiting my ability to sort of move forward. So, right. but yeah, no, I really, and I didn't really sort of realize that I didn't didn't enjoy playing uh, piano until I really got into bass guitar and I really took it on as my own sort of thing. Because playing piano, I did it because you know, oh, I I liked music and I, mm. you know, but I didn't really enjoy, I didn't really love it. Like it was always my mother who would make me practice and all this kind of thing. It was never something I just picked up and did myself. I was far more interested in video games and all that other nonsense that you're interested in when you're a kid. So, you know, yeah. So bass guitar though, I totally took on myself. I suddenly was putting on all the records and all that kind of thing. Mm. Um, Yeah. I mean, my, my father was a massive music lover and there was, he had an enormous record collection of seven inch singles and uh, of especially seven inch singles. I'm not sure to what degree this is true, but I remember uh, either him or my mother telling me that there was a period of years where he bought every single single that entered the Australian top 40. Really? Yeah. And so he had thousands, thousands upon thousands of, of 12 inch singles. I'm sorry, seven inch singles. And he would, and he had a few LPs, but he wasn't as into the LPs as he was into the singles. So I grew up next to his turntable and these excellent, you know, seven inch singles that were spinning all the time. And so he used to make cassette tapes for me of, Mm. of, of all the pop music that he was into. And he was, he was massively into, you know, ABBA and Nat King Cole and Patsy Cline and, but then also all the, all the music of the time. I really sort of got into music by, I used to get up every single uh, Saturday and Sunday morning at 5.30 or 6.30 in the morning or whatever it was and watch the Rage Top 40 front to back. And so my musical upbringing that I really loved was really just pop music. I loved, absolutely loved pop music. The first video that I remember uh, seeing, because I was like four years old at the time, but it was a song by Tiffany called I Think We're Alone Now. I know the song. Yeah. Yep. So I remember waking up one morning and turning on the TV because I was looking for cartoons, but that song came on. Yep. And I remember like because I pressed the wrong button. on the, Instead of pressing the, the Channel 7 button, I pressed the Channel 2 button or something like that. And that song came and I was like, what is this? <laughs> when I was four years old. Yeah, yeah. And I just sat down and watched the, watched the, the top 40 from front to back. Right. And so that was – and I started doing that. 
every week for years and years and years. So, so all of the music from the late 80s through all the way through the 90s, I, I knew all the, all the pop songs. Right. So were you trying to play along to that stuff? No, 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 no. no. Just... I, I think this was, I'd very much had, for some reason in my mind, I had disconnected playing, playing music with listening, listening to music. Right. Yeah. Which right. is an unusual That's, thing because yeah. now it's all I do, you know? Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. First time that I liked a song that my dad disliked too, because that was, that was November Rain by Guns N' Roses. Didn't you like that? No, my Oh, no, my yeah, dad oh, didn't dad, like right. it. My dad right. didn't like it, but I thought it was fantastic. Right. Because like, I don't think he liked Axl Rose's voice. The song. Black. Yeah. yeah. All the Pat Boone, Debbie Boones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that was. And so that was, uh, I guess, the point of divergence of my. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you just want to like the same things as your dad likes. You want to like what he. You want to like his music. You want to like what football teams or whatever he yep. follows. You want to, you know, like all the same things. But, yeah, obviously, as I'm uh, watching music, there's music that that I just think is fantastic, but, but you know, oh, that's, that's not good, you know, that's not good music. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was my early bringing, you know, yeah. entry into, into music. Yeah, that's cool. You just said Pat Boone, Debbie Boone. Yeah. Now, now I'm really intrigued by that. Yeah. Do you do that often with a type of fill that you want somebody to play or you, so you, you know what I mean? I've never heard that before. Oh, really? Yeah, no, oh, I've never no. heard it. Oh, yeah. Pat Boone, Debbie Boone, no, no, Bucket of Fish, you know, all that I, kind I know of exactly, thing. but I've, yeah. never, I've never heard that before. Oh, yeah. No, I, I can't remember. I've got to get out of my before. cave, man. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's... Pat I, Boone, Debbie Boone, that's exactly it. Yeah. It's like those... Um, oh, yeah, there's there's all those different ones. Now. I think they've done a McDonald's one for all the, the notations. Oh, really? Like hamburger. Hamburger. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. goodness me. Yeah. Fillet of fish. Fillet. Oh, that makes perfect <laughs> yes, sense. Fillet of fish. Exactly. Fillet of fish. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Pat Boone, Debbie Boone. I'm never going to forget that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, how far into, from a grade perspective, um, did you go with piano? Oh, a fourth grade. I think I, I, right. I got out of it because there was, a, there was a point where my, I think for my fifth grade exam, my teacher had forgotten to submit my application. And oh. so, and my mother was livid. And so I just thought, oh, perfect excuse. I get to, <laughs> I get to drop it. Right. Because I, by then I'd already started playing the, I was, I'd started playing the bass and I was really into that. Right. Um, I mean, and also I was sort of discovering my own sort of uh, musical thing as well. I mean, uh, as I've said, up until that point, I was just, I just loved pop music. But then um, I'd given my mate, from school gave me a cassette with, and I used to listen to cassettes front to back, front to back. So I'd put one record on one side and one, another record on the other side. But my uh, friend gave me a cassette of, it was Led Zeppelin four on one side and Black Sabbath Paranoid on oh, the man. other side. Now I'd encountered a bit of rock music, just that which had appe- which appears on, you know, the Australian top 40. But that was just something else. I mean, as far as classic rock, like I'd obviously gotten into Queen because of mm. the Another One Bites the Dust mm. bass riff. But Queen are a band that are more of, they are like a pop-based band. They're not really a yep. like a, a blues-based band. And obviously with Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, they're very much rooted in the blues. And I'd just never heard anything like that before in yeah, my life. Right. And so I, I, I think I was doing a paper round at the time right. and – Man, that that ninety minute cassette, which was forty five minutes on each side, it got played oh. front to back, front to back, and 
you know, obviously like Led Zeppelin, people call them a, a rock and roll or a heavy metal band. Like they're really not. They really are like a blues folk band. They just hit hard. And that's yeah. the that's the blues folk rhythm and blues. Yeah. Bonham's, that's it. Bonham's drumming, you know. Yeah. They've they really have sort of stolen a lot from, you know, old uh, you know, the blues and from the old uh, soul and gospel songs and they've just kind of appropriated them into their own sort of brand of, of jams and music and but it was just unlike anything I'd ever heard. Yep. And so that kind of led me on to the whole sort of rock and roll. Right. Uh, so thing. so did this um, sort of start you into into your own, your first sort of band at that stage or you were just discovering it on your own? Yeah, no, I was discovering it on my own. Yep. I, I did have, you know, everyone has high school bands. That's but, what um, I'm asking, yeah. Yeah, no, yep. no, nothing really that stuck. I, uh, mm. I, I had a, I had a, high school band with a chap by the name of Michael Solo and he's uh he's now the drummer in probably the the top corporate band in in Sydney they're called Furnace and the Fundamentals I'm not sure if you've heard of them but they they they're a corporate band who sell out the Enmore Theatre they've just they oh, do shit. yeah they are huge like absolutely huge um they uh and uh there was the singer in that band was also a, a guy by the name of uh uh, David Berry and David Berry is now a, a, a very like quite a famous actor. Um, he he was in uh, Outlander and he's been in other sort of television shows. But so right. yeah. um, and then the the violin player also that one of the guitarists was a was a, a violin player who's now in a, a New York band called Miracles of Modern Science. Right. So that 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 high school band ended up being quite like a prolific. It right. launched the careers of several right. several different people. Um, I don't think we ever had a name though. I can't remember. Right. But yeah, no, I um didn't really sort of get into bands until after I'd finished high school. So when I right. well, throughout high school, I was playing jazz. I was uh, very much. Um, not really ever. I wasn't really like a jazz fan. Like I, I didn't really put on jazz records. I mean, yep. I, you know, I had a few. Like I had yep, some Duke Ellington records and some Count Basie records. The the records that I always had were always the big bands. They were never Miles Davis or the you know the Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, I had a bebop record actually, which I really loved. But yeah, no, I didn't. Never was never really the jazz music. Never grabbed me the way that pop music and rock and roll did. So gotcha. yeah, the. I mean, in my in my later in my later high school days, I even cut, so, sort of started getting into heavy metal music as well. But that I got tired with reasonably quickly. So right. what was that? Uh, as I was like, I started with like you know Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, which yeah. I still still really love. Yep. But I really sort of went into that sort of European sort of thing, okay, which gotcha. yep. which uh, there was. A, I remember listening to a band. I can't remember what they were called, but that was like everything was perfect. The playing was just perfect. The mm. The everything was beautifully in time. Everything was just magic, and I was like, "There is nothing cool about this. I hate this." Yeah. And then stopped listening to metal for like years and years. Right. So, I mean, that was a that was a bad reaction, I guess. But right, mm. I kind of feel that a little bit about Dream Theater these days. Yeah. So Dream um, Theater. I used to love been... love Dream Theater during Mike Portnoy's time with yeah. them. Yeah. But, but yeah, once once that that sort of change happened, it just became too perfect and. I think the last the last two albums I've listened to them I've only gone through once. Yeah, and right. I'm not going to go back because there's not one song that, that. I mean, of course, technically they're brilliant and sonically it's cool, but that's it. That's it for me. Yeah, I, I don't dig it, man. I, I 
I was never a Dream Theater fan. Yeah, right. At all. Right. Uh, I mean, I like I liked one of their keyboard players, Derek Sherinian. Mm-hmm. And I thought I, th- I actually quite liked some of his solo material. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from that, like nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, oh, actually, Mike Portnoy did an, did a series of awesome cover shows and he put together he did, yeah. bespoke bands yeah yeah they're fantastic yeah yeah especially as one he did a did for the who that one was amazing yeah right have you seen that one i don't think i have no oh it's incredible yeah. it's worth seeing yeah so, right. yes. and he's he's got winery dogs now eh? yeah 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 it's killer yeah that's 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 another thing yeah that's huge cool now let's talk about your sort of transition well not transition but but um bringing in the double bass oh wow yeah yeah, so when I w- so when I when I left high school, I was uh, invited by Saul Richardson once again to to be a part of a community big band that was uh, playing quite near where I used to live, uh, and so we were and I was we were doing gigs somewhat regularly. Um, you know, it was just all sort of volunteer stuff at the time, but that was that was awesome. So I was playing I was playing um, lots and lots of jazz. I ended up buying a buying an upright bass because I thought, well, if I'm going to start doing this, oh, that's right. Okay, I remember now. I uh, wanted to go to the Conservatorium of Music to, to do the jazz performance course. Mm-hmm. What happened was that I went in to to do – they had some sort of like pre-audition things where mm-hmm. you could sort of do a mock audition to see like, oh, is this the kind of thing that you should be doing or not? And so I did, and they they were very sort of receptive towards me at the time. But they said you might have some trouble getting in on electric bass. It'd be worth buying. It'd be worth having the upright bass up your sleeve. Right. So I went and and bought one, and uh, and I just sort of started having a sort of a play around on it. Um, it was set up for bow playing, though. And bow playing is very different. Uh, arco playing is very different to pizzicato playing. And obviously, when you're playing. Uh, when you're playing uh, jazz music, you're playing pizzicato style. Yeah, can yeah. can you explain the setup difference then? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, the arco playing, they they generally have a much higher action. the The actual board is the fretboard or whatever you call it. The fingerboard is mm-hmm. is planed into a different shape as well. Oh, there's right. a there's like a there's like a hard edge on on one of the strings, um, under right. underneath one of the strings, and it's just set up much higher. And it was almost impossible to play. So I actually. Yeah, right didn't really so I bought it and then sort of put it off to the side and then didn't really uh didn't really touch it again but then went and did my audition for the con they gave me the the they gave me the marks to get in and I was like oh great so I went and sort of you know met some people who you know who I would have been going with and they were they were all like oh you know like what what records do you listen to what jazz records do you listen to and, and I remember <laughs> thinking at the time I actually don't play jazz. Yeah, right. I mean, I sorry, I don't, I don't listen to jazz. Yep. and they were like, "Oh, what are you, what are you doing here then?" And at the time, I was thinking, "You're actually right. I really yeah, right. don't want to spend four years and spend however many, you know, sixty thousand dollars or whatever, getting a piece of paper that says I know how to play jazz when I actually don't actually. Um, it's not really something that really moves me or really I really love, even mm. though like I. I do like I love jazz, but I it's not something that you know has has really sort of moved me. My move in the same way that pop music or rock and roll does. So, right. yeah, I actually bought the double bass and then sort of put it off to the side for for many years. Um, I tried to sell it a couple of times, but I didn't. the The offers that I had for it, I was never really happy with. 
it wasn't until I had started playing professionally again and quite a few of the gigs like were, oh, there's a dinner set. Do you have an upright bass? I was like, actually, yes, I do. So I just started taking it along to, to gigs and I complete and I relearned how to, how to use it. So I went and got it reset up for pop play or for jazz playing and right. all that kind of thing. So suddenly I had a, an instrument that I could actually play as opposed to something that sat in the thing that I just could, I just couldn't play it. So, I mean, it's kind of always, it's kind of always been in the background, but it wasn't something that, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd ever really given proper, proper time to. Right. How often does that come out now? Uh, it, it will come out on this dummy M tour. Oh, cool. It'll come out for that awesome. uh, because she did a, she has got a, like a jazz crossover record that we'll be doing a few songs off. Oh, great. So I'll be re bringing it out for that. Generally speaking, it comes out when there's dinner sets at, uh, in, at, for, for gigs right. that I'm doing for like corporates and weddings and that right, kind yeah. of thing. Okay. Uh, especially if they're outdoors, you know, you're often, uh, doing the upright thing then. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not as good an upright player as I am an a, a electric bass player. Yeah. yeah, I'm. I'm probably. I'm better. I'm better at uh, synth than I am at, at upright bass. Right. I gotcha. Yeah. The, yeah. The synth. I was going to ask you about synth soon, but yeah. Yeah. So now a little knowing a little bit about your little piano history, it kind of. Yeah. Kind of all makes sense now, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, the synth thing was, once again, pop music. I I went and got some DVDs. This would have been ten years ago of. Oh, Lady Gaga, of Katy Perry, of um, Rihanna, you know, all those real like massive pop superstars. And because I just, I'd seen some of their concerts and I'd, I went to Lady Gaga with my wife and we, the band were just amazing. Yep. And so I went and got a bunch of these, these DVDs and I noticed that all the, um, all the bass players were also doubling up on key bass. And so I, uh, I went and bought a synth and I just started asking around. Oh, do you know, do you know any any other bass players who uh, who do the key bass thing? Yeah. And at the time, I didn't really, I couldn't find anyone except for then one time. I, I the one guy who does it was was Ralph Marshall. Okay. Now, do you know Ralph? No. Okay. So I didn't know Ralph at all, but I just sent him a message and said and said to him, "Hey, man, um, he's he's an incredible like." bass player, like electric bass player, synth bass player, upright bass player, singer, like incredible. And I said, Hey man, I'm sort of starting to get into this key bass thing. You know, can you give me any tips? He came back and said, here's my telephone number. Here's my address. Come round. And I was like, Oh my goodness, are you serious? And so <laughs> I drove around to his place and I took the synth that I just bought, which is a little Roland synth. It's still the one I take out everywhere. It's called a little Roland Gaia. Um, Great synth for just really easy, easily, uh, you can easily make patches on this particular little, right. little bass patches on this little synth. And so he sort of showed me, look, this is, this is where you've got to start from. You want to start from this sort of sonic, uh, palette, and then you can adjust from here. And he was showing me all the different sort of patches that he has. And I tried to recreate some of his great sounding bass patches on my synth. And yeah, so he really sort of showed me about how to create bass patches and I've, and I've created so many great bass patches over the years now. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember there's a couple of shows that I've done, which I've been able to really dial in the perfect sounds for. So I remember doing a Madonna show and really dialing in all those exact bass sounds off on, on this little synth. Right. Yeah. 
first time I ever saw someone playing um, a synth bass was Byron, and I can't remember his last name. He was in the first series of The Voice and oh. also played with John Butler. But Byron Loitus? Loitus, yeah. 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 Um, we went to the Mac one night to see Professor Groove um, and half of Professor Groove didn't turn up, so this other band sort of came in. And he was just sitting there on, on his he had a little 210 and he had his, his head was sitting next to it and he just had this little, I don't know if it was a mini Moog or, or something like that, he wasn't even watching it, man. He's just looking around, just playing this. I, I thought it was the coolest thing. Yeah, like, right. Oh, look, keyboard player. But then he'd pull out his bass yeah. and start playing another song and then just pop that down and play this synth bass. I thought it was the coolest thing. Yeah. It would have been, oh, geez, how long ago? 12, 13 years ago, I reckon. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Well, at the time, it obviously wasn't a very popular thing because yeah. uh, at the time, the only, as I said, the only person who... I could even get a recommendation for was was Ralph Marshall and Ralph Marshall's fantastic. Mm. But since then, uh, I've seen a lot of working players pick it up. So yep. it really has become much more of a thing. So definitely a part of an arsenal now, eh? Oh, Something yeah. you definitely pack in your car and definitely gives you extra gigs. I'm sure. Eh? Yeah, yeah. But also, I mean, it, it was really good because when when I started doing it, I'd just sort of. Put, I'd always have it in the car so that if I ever had songs that I could play on the synth, I, I'd bring it out for those songs. I mean, that was just, that was definitely the, the, that was, it, it just, if you can practice playing songs on the gig, it yep. really forces you to do them right the right. first time. Gotcha. I think the first, the first synth gig I ever did uh, was probably not, not a very good one, but you know, it, it really was one of those things where you've got to do it. Yep, you've really got to do it. You know, you can you can practice in your bedroom until you're perfect, but at the end of the day, you've really just got to get into it. Yep. All right, let's talk about going professional. Um, oh yeah. When was that? Oh, sorry. So before you went professional as a musician. Yeah. Um, did you have any other job? Yeah. You've been so, employed. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was in a um, I was in a, I was yes, I was working in a music store. I used to work at okay. Allen's. At, uh, oh, did you? Oh, Pitt Street. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yep. So I might have bought that from. From you. I bought that from Allen's. Yeah, yeah. You probably bought it from me because I used was, to sell a lot of bases. Yeah, that was, uh, would have been, when was my daughter born? 2009. Yeah. 2008. I would have been working there at yeah, the time. Yeah, right. I probably bought that from you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I worked at Allen's for about six years. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. so, oh, goodness me. So, uh, leading up to this, I was, so I left, I, 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 it was in that community big band. I, I stopped doing that and I did an audio engineering degree. Now, the reason why I started doing that was because I, uh, I learnt very quickly that I would enjoy a gig more if it sounded good than if I liked the music. Mm-hmm. Now, that was... And makes, that was a, makes perfect sense. Yeah, so yeah. I was seeing bands that I really liked but they had an ordinary sound yep. and then I'd go and see another gig of a band that I wasn't that into but the sound was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So... And I just and I absolutely loved that. So I went and did an audio engineering, just the diploma though, not not the the full on. Di- but then I learned about all like you know sonic space equalization, mm-hmm. compression, mm-hmm. you know recording to tape, recording to Pro mm-hmm. Tools, all that kind of thing. Where was that? Where was that? That course? was at a, uh, was at SAE. Okay, cool. That was back in two thousand and four. Right. Um, at the time, I uh, was I needed a uh, a band to record a 
uh, Ernest Simon. And I had come across Joel and Jordan from who I now play with in McDonald's. Frankie's World yep. Famous House yep. Band. Yes. Uh, and I, I just called them one day and said, hey, I, I'm looking for a band to record. I'd love to record you guys. Would you be into that? And, and at the time, uh, Joel, who I spoke to, said, I've actually been trying to get your telephone number, but I, I didn't have it. Um, I'm so glad that you called because, you know, yeah, would, would you like to get together and we'll, we'll jam on some things and maybe we can record this stuff together. So we started and then we started a band that became Torch Le Monde, which were like an, it was like an alternative, uh, like alternative rock band Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that, that was a great band at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And we went over, we, we did American tours and all that kind of thing. We ended up by, by the time we had, by the time I left that band, we were, we were at the stage where we was, we were selling out about 600 sort of 600 seat sort of places. So like we, we did a, I think the last big show I did was at the Gaelic Club, so whatever that capacity was, maybe five hundred or four or five hundred. Right. Yeah. So that was I mean, that that was great. Um, but then I, I, I left that band and I got this job at the at the music store mm. doing, um, doing uh, just selling guitars. And the uh, the guitar tech there was a guy was uh, the great and powerful Les Rankin. Do you know? Right. Les Rankin. I don't know him personally. I know who he is. Yeah. He. Is the guy who makes every single guitarist in Sydney's guitar work. He yep. he is just the go-to guy, mm-hmm. and so he was the uh, he was the guitar tech, the in-house tech at Allen's on Pitt Street, and he calls me one day and he says, um, "You're going to get a phone call in ten minutes from Peter Northcote. He's looking for a bass player," and I was like, "Goodness me! All right." Mm-hmm. So sure enough, I get I get a phone call, and it and and Pete says. G'day, Bobby. Look, uh, can you come down for an audition tomorrow? Um, and he's like, and I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, what do you want me to bring? Oh, j- just, just bring a bass. Just bring a bass. So I go down to his studio and he's, you know, uh, and I'd encountered Pete before uh, just, you know, because he used to get his stuff done by Les as well. Um, and so I go down to his studio and uh, he welcomes me in and he says, look, I'm just looking for a bass player who doesn't mess things up at the end of the day. Straight you know, up. Yep. You know, that that's all I'm looking for. Because he was he was still very much at that time pushing his original music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he said, all right, here we go. Uh, can you play me some time? And I was like, okay. Like, and he said, just some eights. And I was like, okay. And he goes, yep, stop. That's great. Okay, what chord am I playing? And he plays a C. And I was like, oh, that's a C major. And he goes, and he plays another chord. Oh, that's a D over F sharp. Great. Okay, great. Can you can you just uh, play me this riff? And he plays and he plays a riff, and so I played it back for him. And he's like, "Great, let's jam." And he and he starts sort of sort of we played like over a funky blues thing. He goes, "Stop. Do you want a gig?" <laughs> and I awesome. was like, "Sure." He's like, "Great, you're in my band." Cool. And that was where I met Dave Ferry as well. Right. Um, oh, sorry, that no, wasn't where I met Dave Ferry. Uh, Torch Lamond and his. Kings, Queens and Fairy Tales band used to do gigs together, but that was when I started playing with Dave. Yep. Um, but that was, that was amazing. So played in, in, uh, Peter Northcote's band for, we were doing gigs reasonably regularly for about two years mm. for, with his original music. Yeah. Right. Um, and that was, that was excellent. That was where I met Bryden Stace, who is one of the, the great vocalists mm-hmm. of, um, in in this country he's now just moved back to the uk um 
yeah, and that was where I I met Dave. So the the profession the the jump to professional was well, we we were at uh, dinner one day after a gig with Pete, and Pete was like, "Mate, you are the kind of player who could do this full time. You are wasting away in that in that shop. Mm. Co- commit to it, and it will come to you." Mm. And I was really freaking out because, of yeah. course, you know, you enjoy that, yep. that you know, extra money and you regularly appearing in your bank account. Mm. And he, he, he's we're at we're at Japanese dinner and he picks up the fish and he makes the fish go, Bobby, <laughs> you need to leave your job and become a professional musician. <laughs> and I'm just there <laughs> laughing, and and I was like, all right, great, I'll do it. And so I. So I I quit my job and started playing full time. Now, right. obviously, at the you know you had to build up a reputation from there. So right. it took that took a bit of time, and I was was doing, that was that scary? Yeah, yeah. I mean, were you married at the time? Yes. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yep. So I was married. I think I was married for about a year by okay. the time I by the time I went full time musician. Mm. So you know that there was still you know rent to pay yeah, and all course. that kind of thing. And yep. Yeah, no, and we would. I think we'd just found out that we were pregnant with my first child, right. so a little bit of that, extra pressure. Yeah, but but once again, you know, had to had to get into it. Uh, and the when I when I first started playing professionally, I, I I discovered quite quickly that all the gigs there was about fifty songs in the Sydney repertoire, quote unquote. Yeah, right. That yeah. were they were the set sort yep. of repertoire, the Sydney and, staples. That's right. Yeah, and so. You know, after playing those fifty songs hundreds of times, oh, I remember sort of thinking, "Wow, we, I can do more than this." And that was how the the Frankie's band sort of came came about. Right. Um, you know, the uh, I I I thought, right, if I can get Dave and Joel, because I'd played with Dave in um in Pete's band, and I'd played with Joel in Torch Lamond, I was like, that could be a band that really works well together. Mm-hmm. And so I went over to to Dave's house and said, "Mate, um, what do you think about starting a band that has a new repertoire of predominantly rock and roll music, as opposed to uh, like uh, the the sort of more R and B R and B based soul music that is predominantly, you know, uh, the most of the gigs in Sydney, and still is, and you know, it's great music." Um, but I was just like, "Yeah, let's sort of move away from this just for for a, for a gig." And he was into it, and so I said, "All right, I'm going to call Joel, see if he's into it." And, and Joel was into it. We got together, and it just gelled straight away. Mm-hmm. So um, we were together. We we did maybe three or four jams before we started playing regularly at Frankie's. Yeah, but yeah. Now, just on Frankie's, you bought me a little present. I did. Right. So let's talk about this for a second. That's right. this is so in my hand. Um. It's a Frosty's Pale Ale. So you tell us a little bit about this. So this, this is brew. this is the uh, the the brew that is uh, the in-house brew. This one is the in-house lager. I'm oh, sorry, the in-house ale. They've also got a lager called Sydney Draft. Uh, and this is the ale that is the in-house ale at Frankie's. Right. Um, as in, it's made specifically for Frankie's. It's now starting to get out there into other um, bars as well. So it's at it's at the hideaway and it's at the um oh it's at the dock and it's at you know there's a there's a few there's a few little places that are starting to to carry this but cool. it's such a great beer it's not it's not like a you know like a it's not a 
uh, craft, you know, like really pretentious yeah, beer. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yep. It's just a really great, you know, crack it open. I'm Have a crack see, it open. See, yeah. see what you think. There we go. Oh, mate. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's great. It's really nice. Je- yeah, so Jordan, the uh, the the pretty much the mastermind behind Frankie's Pizza by the Slice. He was uh, he was the guy who uh, invented that particular brew. Oh, All right. Yeah. So, and he's and I believe that uh, that is that's going to start rolling out to more and more places. Um, wow, that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Frankie's is really is has become a world famous venue. Yeah. Um absolutely. I mean they've they get some massive artists there yeah. um to do secret shows and one off yeah. shows and all that kind of but thing. Phil there. and Selmo was there not long ago, eh? That's right. I saw the videos of that. That was I, they might have been from you. Yeah. Did you have some side of stage videos? I did, yeah. Fuck, they look yeah. crazy, man. People was trying to jump those barriers and yeah. security. Oh, whoa. That was that was from the side of stage. I found yeah. that so entertaining. It was yeah. like watching live yeah. human yeah. pinball yeah, yeah, yeah. because they were coming over and the, the security guards were just pushing him right back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was hilarious. Yeah. But the, <laughs> I remember the moment that I sort of was like, wow, this is incredible. It was when I went to see Skid Row there and um, and the bass player, Rachel Boland, he, he gets on the mic. And he says, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but when it comes to famous historic rock and roll venues, people talk about CBGBs. They talk about the Whiskey A Go Go in LA and they talk about Frankie's Pizza in Sydney. Really? Wow. Yeah. How cool is that? And we were just like, whoa, that's amazing. So, right. I mean, wherever I go worldwide now, people talk about Frankie's Pizza and they that's great. They, they know all about it. Yep. I mean – and it's a stop too, isn't it? Dave was telling me, like when when bands come through town, oh, on, absolutely, on show, yeah, that's that's the place to go. Absolutely, the number mm. of the number of of musicians who I've met there over the years. I remember there was one. Remember the heavy metal festival Soundwave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember there was one year that it had just all finished up, and all the bands ended ended up at Frankie's afterwards. And so I'm on stage playing, and as I look out, I can see there's Green Day. There's Corn. There's Avenge Sevenfold. There's Five Finger Death Punch. Like they were ah. all just <laughs> there, and it was it was surreal. I yeah. mean, some of the some of the, the just the sheer number of of musicians who we've played in front of, and some of and some like bona fide superstars. Yeah, yeah. Who come in and they they always love the band. They yeah. always love the band, and we've of, like over the years we've picked up some some killer gigs. Yeah, uh, doing that. You know, mm-hmm. we've been the bands that you know people have taken taken us out on the road and all that kind of thing yeah great yeah dave explained it it's like frankie's its own little ecosystem within itself you know yeah, yeah. well it i mean it it just is it it was so different to anything else that sydney yeah. has experienced yeah. Yeah. for probably many years mm-hmm. um that when it first opened it was it was simply a fantasy land like just Everyone was there all every, every night of the week. I mean, you know, like it was so new, it was so exciting. It, it still is. I mean, mm. it just is. It's just a place that people want to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, on any on any given Monday. I mean, Monday is is still the quietest night of the week. I mean, when we first went there, they um they actually said to us, "Oh, we want you to play on Mondays because that's our quiet night." 
every other night of the week we're packed. And so Mondays we're just, we're just, and so when we started playing on Mondays, you know, immediately people started coming, you know, yep. on any given Monday we'll have a hundred, 150, 200 people there. That's great. Um, you know, yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Mm. And that, yeah, it seems like that little rock scene is starting to grow again in Sydney. Yeah. You've got, you've got Frankie's, of course. You've got Rambling Rascals. Yeah. You've got the Hideaway Bar now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Hideaway Bar's been there for a while. Yeah, it's I just, mean, since, yeah. since since Demo. Yeah, Demo's now Damo got a hold of it. He's, got a, he's sort of, yeah, it's starting yeah. to have a little bit more of a profile. God bless him, yeah. Yeah, man. He's, yeah. he's a dude. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, that's all, that's all starting to come around. You know, the the Crowbar, who are a, a Brisbane mob, have mm-hmm. just, they bought the old uh, Bullface Stag and they've re, redone that. That's right. now like a pretty serious live venue. They've got heaps of touring bands coming through there. Right. Yeah, like Sydney really is. Still no of, pokies in there, eh? Nah. Yeah, nah. cool, eh? I mean, none of the venues that I've just mentioned have pokies. Like, I mean, they all have, they seem to, pinball's becoming a thing though. Pinball, yeah. Yeah, yeah. people are yeah. sort of doing the pinball thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, pokies really are a thing of the past. Like yeah. As, as far as, far as, as far any. As far as those kind of venues. Any venue that wants any vibe, as soon as you put, as soon as you put pokies in there, you have immediately like raised the white flag in defeat. You really yeah, have. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Like, no, there are so many great venues in Sydney to, to play now. Mm. Um, I really don't get the, the doom and gloom that seems to be so pervasive in the industry. Yeah. Um, it's, it's only really a handful of people, eh? Probably. They're noisy. Ba- based, based on who I've, I've chatted with, which, you know, it's not that many people, but yeah, everybody's got something going on except yeah. this handful of people that think it's never going to change and they're waiting for it to be like it used to be, but it never will. You know? Yeah, no, change is, change is important and Ooh, change is, is always coming. I'm actually um, I'm uh, writing a paper at the moment on streaming services. I saw your Facebook post today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So are you uh, was that to try and get a little bit more information for your paper? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, so cool. that, was, that was just to sort of get a I've, – I've written a few things over the, over the months about mm-hmm. it, but – yeah, I've, I'm finding that I reckon that streaming services are absolutely going to save the recorded music industry. Um, right. You know, from from the the recorded music industry was pretty much on a constant sort of general upward trend from the 1950s up until 1999. Yep. Then in 1999, from 2000 to 2015, it was on a constant downward trend. The reason why 1999 was the peak, that was the year that Napster, Napster was yep. released. Yep. Then it went gradually down, which... The downward was slow, but down, but generally downward. It, mm. I think it it probably halved in value, or maybe even more, mm. over the over that that fifteen year period. Mm. But it's only taken three years to make up ten years worth of losses. So in really? so the twenty eighteen mu- recorded music revenue was back up to the two thousand and five levels. So right. in Australia, that's about five hundred and thirty million dollars. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's still not up to the 1999 peak, but yeah. the exponential rate at which streaming services are growing, I reckon we're going to overtake that. Right. Who's getting that money, though? Because the artists aren't, are they? Yeah, no, they will. Because right. They will. Uh, because the streaming services take about a 20, between 25 and 30% cut, which is uh, exactly what the record stores used to take back in the day. Right. So they used to take about a 30% margin or 20, 25 to 30% margin. 
and then the rest, all the rest of that that money is then passed on to uh, people who are the recording owners and the song the songwriters. And so, the interesting thing about streaming services also is that they not only pay a mechanical royalty, which is what usually CDs would would pay out, because yep. a mechanical royalty is when you're, you know, a song doesn't exist. It's it's like an it's like an uh, it's like a an immaterial idea, let's mm-hmm. say. But if you make that into a physical product, like a CD or a piece of sheet music, or yep. you know, yep. you know that 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 mechanical process of it becoming a, a thing, you get a, the songwriter gets a royalty. So. You know that that's the way that works, and then and then there's also uh, performance royalties, which is yep. like when your when your song is played on radio, it's not yep. reproduced yep. Uh, into a into a physical form like a CD, mm-hmm. but it's being communicated. So that 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 gets a performance royalty. Right. With streaming services, they have to pay both a mechanical and a streaming and uh, sorry a mechanical and a performance royalty. So right song, on, on every stream, yeah. So they should actually ah. get. So songwriters should start seeing a double portion right. of royalties. Right, they should. They if, should. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, still. I mean, and, and when when should they be starting to see this? Well, once uh, the the big, honestly, the big bad wolf in the whole thing at the moment is free tiers and ad supported tiers. Right. Ad supported tiers are absolutely terrible. I mean. Right now, worldwide, there are about a hundred million Spotify uh, paid subscribers, mm-hmm. but there are two hundred and seventeen million active monthly users, and so more than half of the the people who are streaming music are mm-hmm. doing so for free or on on an ad supported basis. And ad supported streams these the revenue that's generated from ad supported streams is minuscule compared to that which is. Uh, comes through uh, the the paid subscriptions. Yeah. So so when you say ad supported stream, that that's your free. That's the free, free tiers, Spotify. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. So if if you're listening to this and you're on free uh, Pandora or you listen <laughs> to music through YouTube, that's a that's a killer. That's an absolute killer. Yeah. Um, just pay for the pay for a Spotify or an Apple Music is even yeah, better. Um, the app the Apple Music uh I. There's a. I put a link on m- one of my posts a while ago. the The number of streams of paid streams it takes to earn one US dollar, mm. and on Apple Music it was about seventy five streams. If you if your song is streamed twenty five, uh, sorry, seventy five times, you'll earn one US dollar. But if your song is streamed one hundred and thirty five times on Spotify, you'll earn one US dollar. So it almost is almost double. Like, yeah. Right. So. I'm not exactly sure why that is. I think uh, I think that Apple Music pay out a, a, a higher mechanical or performance royalty. Mm. It's one of those. It's one of those two. But I've I've got I've got a link to that. Maybe I'll put that so you can get Def- that in the, in the show notes. Definitely. Yeah. One of the one of the top ones I believe is Tidal. Is that right? Yeah, Tidal's really good. The actual and believe that, it or and not, and that's that's Jay Z, isn't it? That's yeah, Jay Z's company. Yeah, yeah. right. Yep. Believe it or not, the the best paying out streaming service is Napster. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've <laughs> they've relaunched. I mean, I, I'm I think that all the streaming services are actually losing money, which is I don't know how that works. How? But yeah. I, I haven't gotten into that into it that far yet, but I intend to find out why that why oh, that's a thing. Interested. But what we should start to see happening quite soon is that once once the legislation is in is in place because it needs to be regulated, um, 
because at the moment, like, you know, people can listen to music for free. Uh, once the legislation is in place, uh, you should see songwriters being properly paid um, for, for the for the songs they're writing and recording rights. So if you're, a, if you're an indie band and you've recorded your own songs and released it, mm-hmm. then you should start getting paid out, you know, paid out properly. Obviously still if you're... If you're if you're with a record label and you are you're signed to a publisher and you've you've got all those publishing deals and your, yep. your record deals, um, that's going to be still much harder to, to sort of earn that. Obviously, you're not going to be earning a dollar for seventy five streams on Apple Music, or you're not going to be earning a dollar for one hundred and thirty five streams on Spotify. But your yeah, record company is yeah, yeah. Your, your record company and they pay you out your royalties still. Um, mm-hmm. You know, depending on what your publishing uh, is and what your record deal is, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I reckon it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating totally. thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I thought it was all doom and gloom to be honest. No, till nah. till you've told me about that today. No, it's really exciting. People always uh, conflate uh, streams with sales. Now, yeah, a, yeah, I a, understand. So a platinum a platinum record in Australia was seventy thousand sales, I think seventy thousand sales, whereas a song in the top, you know, a song, a song in the top, you know, twenty or whatever would be getting 100, 125,000 streams per day in Australia, just in Australia. Right. So, and, you know, and that's built up over time, yeah. you know. So, yeah, you know, st- streaming, once everyone gets on to uh, paying for a subscription, yep. it really is going mm. to, to move forward. I think that's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm with Apple Music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The reason, reason that being, um, you know, having – used Macs for a long time and I've got a massive iTunes library. All my CDs are on iTunes. Yeah, great. H- having the Apple Music, it's just mm. a push button between Apple Music and my library. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Then, instead of having to go into another app, you know, having, having my iTunes stuff in, in one app and then going into, uh, yeah. I'm exactly the same. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I initially went with Apple Music just because literally it, it appeared on my telephone one day. It said right. three months free, and I was like, yeah. sure. And of course, I mean, Apple Music actually had a massive, uh, a massive publicity bump when Taylor Swift said, "I'm so disappointed in yeah, you, yeah. Apple that you're not going to pay out your songwriters for that first three months." And yeah, yeah. Apple went came back and were like, "Yeah, no, actually, you're right. Yeah, we, we are, we are going to pay them." Yeah, and then. And we need you, Taylor. Yeah. And so then, of course, what happened was all these, all these, uh, uh, that actually started like a bit of a, a, a bit of like a cascading effect where there was some, there were some publishing houses that had these huge stables of artists who weren't, who they weren't going to put on streaming services. Mm. Suddenly all those, those publishing houses suddenly were like, oh, actually, Apple Music have got the right idea. We're going to put out. We're going to yeah, put our artists right. on on Apple Music, right. and so it, it really was kind of a bit of a, a a bump for for them. But yeah, I mean, they were just recently in the United States, uh, Trump has just signed the Music Modernization Act into law, which is going to come into effect. Um, oh, I've forgotten the exact things that that does, but that's a very good that's a very good thing for songwriters, right? Um, and for producers as well. Um, yeah, that's 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 if that filters at, if that filters down through the rest of the world, that'll be very good. And because obviously the a lot of the energy in the music industry comes from the United States of America, uh, hopefully that will filter through to other markets as well. Fascinating, man. Yeah, I, I can't <laughs> wait to see what happens with this. Yeah, yeah. Now, singing. When did you start singing? Oh, 
I used to um do I used to just do backing vocals for for bands that yeah. I was in. I, yeah. I don't think I was I think I was when I was younger, I used to think I had a bad singing voice. Mm. Especially after, you know, once you've your voice is broken and it changes and all that kind of thing and I could never really sound the way I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um it wasn't until like really the last sort of few years that I've really gotten into it. Mm. Um and I absolutely love singing. Cool. I um I I sing uh I sing lead vocals on, you know, a range of songs now. I'm uh I'm taking some some vocal lessons with uh, Stephen Baker. Um it's he's a great vocal teacher. And I I just really I really enjoy singing. Mm. Um I do I also uh I do a my Sunday gig is actually uh, uh MDing a a evening church service for a, for an Anglican church, and so that is I'm I'm singing uh, lead vocals for all that kind of thing, and that's oh, that's awesome. amazing because then you're you're actually leading. You're not just sort of singing by yourself. You're leading, you know, like fifty, sixty odd people in 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 singing, and that's just great fun. Fantastic. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah, um, but singing is such a feather in the cap if you're any if you're an instrumentalist. Yeah, yeah, you know, I yeah. mean. It really is the difference sometimes between you getting hired and not hired. I mean, so as I mentioned before, the reason why I'm in Dami Im's band was because I could sing and play bass. Yeah. And, and you know, you've spoken to Victor before. Victor's an incredible singer yep. and bass player. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, singing and singing and playing is, is almost essential now. Mm. Yeah. Do you do any singing? I do BVs. Yeah. Um, I've had a couple of... In a couple of songs that I've I've sort of sung solo on, but that particular band I'm I'm no longer with. Sure. Um, oh, sorry. I I sung on all my my EP, obviously. Oh, great. Yeah, and, I and all my BVs and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll give you a link to it. Yeah, yeah, great. Now, I saw on your your Facebook you were endorsed by Fender. Yes. Right. Cool. And you were. <laughs> I saw one one little video you put up. You're trying to work out. Jazz bass or P bass, and you put them next to each other, and one of them rolled over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate! No, I'm a, I'm definitely like a P bass guy. Uh, okay, I, yep. I, I, I have been for, for a long time. Yeah, I, I haven't got my fingers aren't long enough for a P bass. When I started, I, I, when I started playing bass, I always played Yamaha basses, not for any particular reason. They were just the ones I happened to buy. Okay, um, I had, and. But the more that I was playing and I was playing in studio situations and that kind of thing with bands that I was in, mm. the producers would often say to me, do you have a Fender? And right. it happened more than once. Like it happened two or three or four times even mm. from several different producers. And I was like, why are they always asking me to play a Fender? Mm. Anyway, one of the US tours that I did, I just didn't take a bass. I took a wad of cash and intended to buy a bass over there. Right. And so I went to a guitar center in, in Los Angeles and I tried out a bunch of different basses, not just Fenders, but a whole bunch, but definitely came away from that with a, with a Fender precision bass. Right. And you know, the, uh, that fast forward a few years, uh, I was actually in a band uh, called the Widow Birds, which yeah, are, yeah. Yep. Uh, unfortunately they're no longer going, but yep. they're, they were a fantastic band. And Simon Melly, Simon Melly, yep. uh, yeah, t- Tony Kvesic and um, Shane O'Neill, Shane O'Neill, yep. that's it, Steel O'Neill. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was um, that was I mean that was a that was a great band. Um, but I actually 
uh, was doing a gig with them and I just decided for whatever reason to do a gig with my Rickenbacker. And while I'm at this gig, a representative from Fender comes up to me and says, hi, um, I know that you usually play Fenders. We'd actually like to, 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 for you to come on board. And I oh, laughed. Wow. I said, wow, what are the chances? The one gig that I decide to bring my Rickenbacker out to, you've, you've decided to come and sign me up. So I went in there and, <laughs> and, uh, I, I I went in there and you know they were just so beautiful. They said, "What what what would you like?" And I said, "Oh, I definitely want like a precision bass." And so they pulled out every single model of precision bass for me. And uh, and so and the one that I chose, it ended up being a custom shop model. Mm. Um, it it was uh, called the Fifty Nine Journeyman. And then once I'd chosen that one, they pulled out every single instance of that bass oh, that they what? had. And so they were said, "Like which which one would you like?" And I played them all and. You know, I the one that I got was just the mad magic bass. I mean, I've I've had several other other bass players play it, and they just go, "Oh, mate, this is magic!" Wow. So they, you know, they it's a it's a really special bass. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's my ninety five percent bass. I play that a lot. Um, mm. You know, all the Frankie's gigs. You know, I've got. I mean, I've got about seven basses mm. all up. I've got my my Fender Precision. I've got a Fender Jazz, obviously, which is the flea model. Which is yep. that's a that's a great bass too. Um, I actually went back to Fender and said I want a jazz bass, and at the time I just didn't quite have the you know the funds to really sort of get a get a custom shop model. But mm-hmm. um, of all the of all the basses, I played a, cu- a couple of custom shop models. That flea one was actually the closest to the to the custom shop models. Right, so right. I. In, in feel and sound. When I when I buy basses, I generally don't plug them in. I because okay. if if I don't like the way they 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 sound plugged in, I can generally you, you uh, can change that. Can't you? I can, you can change your pickups and all that kind of thing. I'm always just about the 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 feel, yeah. The the wood and the yep. the, the neck, the 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 body, mm-hmm. you know, the feel, and you know how it sounds acoustically. Because mm-hmm. if you get a great sounding bass acoustically, then you can get a great sounding bass when you plug it in. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that was the. The, the best one. Mm. I mean, I've got, uh, I've got a music man, uh, stingray. Yeah. One of the classic models, not one of the new ones. The, the new ones have three band EQ. The old ones have the two band EQ. Right. I really love the ones with the two band EQ. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a Mason bass called a JB four, which was, you know, a classic bass in the 80s. electrical or electric bass, electric bass. Oh, right. Yeah. That was the bass that was used by heaps and heaps of those pub rock bands like J- Ganga Jang and Goanna and right. yeah, um, uh, Avion and a lot of bands from the eighties in Australia. They, right. Oh, Violent Femmes were were right. were massive uh, players of of this bass. Mm. Um, I've got an old Ibanez from the from the from nineteen eighty one, which is called a musician bass. Right. Uh, that was that's a fretless bass. That was what I was playing when I was playing in big bands. Um, right. In the yeah that. That's my oldest bass. That's that's the bass I've had for the longest. I've had that since I was in high school. Yep. Um, oh, and of course, Rickenbacker and uh, and a Hofner. Yeah, right. Beetle bass. Yeah, awesome. Uh, the Rickenbacker, I I call that the uh, the nerd bass because yep. it seems like all the all the prog rock sort of you know Yes and you know Rush and mm-hmm. all those bands that love love those Rickenbackers. I mean, they just clang. They're great. Yeah. They're great fun. Heavy. No, light. Yeah, right. My one's really light. Right. Yeah, it's a four double O three. I mean it it's it's a it's a great sounding bass. I actually I'll I'll sometimes play that 
in bands where there are two guitarists yep. because it takes up a different sonic space to where the, the Fender does. Gotcha. The Fender's really great if you just, you know, if, if there's one guitarist, it, it fits really well. But if there's two guitarists, sometimes they can sort of clash a bit so mm-hmm. that the, the Rickenbacker seems to um, fit it in a different, yep. yeah. Scooped out a bit. Yeah, it's yep. got it's a bit of a richer sound in the bottom, and it's got a real clang in the top. So that's yep. that's really good. And of course, the the Hofner is just such an amazing sounding <laughs> bass. It people often think that uh, they sound really sort of plonky or whatever. I just reckon they sound amazing. They sound like upright basses sometimes, and obviously it's the Paul McCartney thing. Of so course, yeah, it's such a rich part of of pop music and rock music history. So yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me about the Gilby Clark thing. Oh I played wow. with Gilby Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that was that was amazing. Gilby Clark is such a gentleman. Yeah, man. He's always been one of my favorite gunners. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. Totally. Such a beautiful guy. Mm. Um so yeah, that was uh we we just got the call. I mean, he he had been brought out for the 5th Frankie's birthday. Um So he he came through Frankie's and saw you guys at Frankie's? No, no, no. So oh, he Oh, right. He came out for the for the for the 5th birthday. And so we were going to be and so we got we as the house band got um, – we were the, – the deal was he was going to sort of come out um, and play at the Frankie's fifth birthday and we were going to be his band. Right. But as it turned out, he ended up doing a run of shows. So we did right. like, you know, all the sort of East Coast sort of shows, so Brisbane, Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne. Um, and that was, you know, it was his music. It was the um, – it was also the – his music, the Guns N' Roses music and mm. – and it was just, and you know, he he's he sings and he plays guitar, yep. he plays lead, yep. and yeah, it was it was a really enjoyable experience playing with Gilby. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, when we went, Joel and I went back to LA last year, and he, you know, welcomed us to his house, and he was showing us around his studio, and he was taking us to gigs, and he was showing us around downtown LA and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah, he beautiful guy, beautiful yeah. guy, cool. Mm. That's great. Now the um. Sony Music All Stars. Now in your um your bio you sent me. I was oh, trying yeah. to make sense of all that. There's a lot of artists there. Oh, that, yeah. So no, was that, that like a That was a charity single. <laughs> oh right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, right. That was a that was a single that, that um that uh Sony Music had released for uh for oh what was the charity? I think it's the Sony Foundation. Right. The Sony Foundation. Mm. And they um they they needed someone with a with a Hofner bass to to play the because oh, right. they were doing uh, with a little help from my friends the, okay. the Beatles song yeah, yeah yeah and the the producer sent it over to me and I, that was Michael Tan once right. again Michael Tan he uh, he sent it over no, and I know said, I know a guy with a Hofner yeah. yeah well and they I actually sent back that song was actually recorded Mac- McCartney recorded that with a Ricky so I sent it back with a Fender with a, a Rickenbacker and with a with a Hofner bass track and right. I said look here's three um, choose which one you'd like. And so they ended up going with the Hofner one, but yeah, no, that was a, that was a great, but that, that was such a, such a great, um, great thing to be a part of. Cause then at the end of the day, like it started as one thing, mm-hmm. but soon like all these artists are sort of coming on board. So like Delta Goodrum came on board and Olivia Newton, John and John Farnham and, mm. um, Guy Sebastian. And suddenly it, like it, I think it started quite small, but ended up being quite, quite a massive sort of, project and yeah i mean tommy emmanuel played guitar on it yeah. and um and jack jones you know yeah yeah rick price like mm. it, yeah it's huge huge single i think it, it the project became yeah right mm. um so apart from the the dami 
stuff coming up? What what have you got coming up in the future? What about your own music? Yeah, so yep. with with my music, I've kind of been in and out of a few bands. I mentioned before, um, uh, Torch Lamont, which was the alt rock band. I was in a band called Strange Karma. In and out once again. Um, they were like a they are should I say a sort of heavy uh, rock sort of Zeppelin Queen sort of thing. So really my kind of thing. But um, that been out in and out of that twice. Mm. Um, I was in the Widowbirds uh, up until that sort of uh, came to an end when Simon Melly uh, moved up uh, to Queensland. Yep. And I was in a band called Battlesnake most recently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was that was great fun. That was ridiculous. I mean, I actually uh, came across uh, Battlesnake uh, because, you know, do you know Paul Mason, guitar player? I know of Paul Mason. Yeah, yep. he, he, we, Paul, Paul and I are, are great mates. So, I mean, mm. he, we often sort of get together and chat and play and all that kind of thing. But he said to me one day, oh, I'm, I'm joining this band. I'm not sure if it's really my thing, but you know, like it's a, it's a, it's a really different thing for me. And I said, Oh, what kind of thing? He said, Oh, it's a rock thing. Like it's a heavy rock thing. And I was like, it's, there's three guitars. And I was like, Oh man, you got to do that. Uh-huh. Anyway. So he, so he, he did join it and, and, and I went and saw them and I was, I thought it was one of the most ridiculous things I'd ever seen because it, it, it is, they, come out on stage, they're wearing leotards and fur coats and <laughs> they're playing this like real, like, you know, like classic metal kind of thing. Like they're like the darkness kind of, yeah. you know, that, that kind of thing. And, um, I thought it was the best thing ever anyway. So they, they, their bass player, um, left to go overseas, I think, or something like that. And so they asked me, would you like to join? And I was like, Oh, heck yes, definitely. <laughs> so that was good fun. Unfortunately, uh, it got to the point where we're just in. Like they're they're a bit younger than me. I was. Okay. I'm. They're about ten years younger than me. All of them. So mm. we're just in different life stages. I understand. Yep. Yeah. So that, I mean, they. I remember there was a point where they had like eight gigs lined up, and I could do none of them because I had all all gigs already sort of booked. And I'm not unfortunately in a place where I can say you know to cancel paid gigs of in course. order to to of sort course. of take on these these new ones mm. and so that was that was a shame but th- there was the the guy who's who then replaced me he, he had already done a few shows because i was i had to sort of uh dep out a few and you know so he just slotted right in so at the end of the day i ended up only doing one single with them which was a song called the nightmare king um nice. but they've just released another song called uh the atomic plow um so definitely <laughs> check them out on um on uh, Apple Music, on Spotify, uh, Battle Plow, how cool is that? Battle Snake, yeah, Battle Snake, Battle Snake, yeah, they're 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 a great fun band, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just saw their I just saw their recent photo shoot actually, and it's they've gone and made Battle Snake male bikini bottoms, <laughs> and they're all just wearing these white male bikini bottoms, and they're in like this pink backdrop. It looks very silly, and it's very <laughs> good. Yeah, you've got um, you've built your own little recording studio in your house. I've got a bit of like a setup. A setup. So, yeah, yeah. So yes. do you do much work out of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's okay. where I do all my all my tracking. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, when people send me send me uh, tracks to put on, I just do it all at home. I've got a really nice uh, preamp. Um, yeah. I've got you know, you know, I pull out my uh, my compressor and sort of you know just I track everything in Logic and yeah, yeah it's fine. Yeah, that's Logic's cool. Man. That's what I've done all my all my tracking on. It's very rare that I'd have I'd get called in to to an to a studio. Yep. Some you know, but you yeah, know, not, not too many left too. By the way, still happens. You know, for for yeah, labels yeah. and that kind of thing, sometimes yep. they'll they'll call you into a studio to actually track 
in their studio so that, you know, you can be there in front of their producer and all that kind of, of thing. Course. But right. generally speaking, you know, mm. yeah, most of the time I'm, I just do it from home. Mm. And how, how often do you get those sessions? Oh, it varies. Yeah. Um, sometimes, sometimes they, they, sometimes, you know, like a couple of weeks, sometimes none. So, yeah, you know, it really, it really goes in ebbs and flows. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've played on, on quite a few things over the, over the years, I guess. So, mm. you know, you kind of lose track of these things actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I guess on my, on the, on the things that I write, I'll put out like ones that might stick out because they've, but they are actually artists or they're sure. things that I was more sort of involved with, sure. you know, like in the, in the production side of things or, yep. or, or that kind of thing. So, yep, of I mean, yeah, actually, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's about building up relationships with producers and. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And I was just wondering if it's a kind of a, a regular thing or it's just sporadic. That yeah. Kind of thing, which it, it usually is, isn't it? It's, it's generally but for most people. regularly sporadic. Regularly you know, sporadic, yeah. yeah. Like it, it yeah. comes, it comes in ebbs and flows. Sometimes you'll be doing a lot of it, and then sometimes yeah. you just don't. You know, it doesn't doesn't come at all. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, these days, they obviously it costs money for 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 you to track a bass player. People just, you know, they'll just s- sample it, or they'll, you know, yeah, yep. you know, they they they'll program it in, all that kind of thing. I mean, yep. with the with the new um with the new sample libraries that are coming out, a lot of people are getting replaced. By yeah. sample average, especially drummers, actually. Yeah, no. Yeah. Drummers are, drummers are, I mean, there's no good sample libraries of acoustic guitars or electric guitars. So really yeah. that, the guitar players, you know, are pretty safe. Obviously, vocalists, you can't really replace no, vocalists with sample not, yeah. libraries. Drummers, bass players, like string sections and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Like often producers will, they'll sample like a, a they'll write a string section and then they might get like one string player to come in and play on top of that right. and that and it gives it that or gives it yeah, yeah just enough because this yep. the sample library gets you maybe 95 percent of the way there yeah you know especially with something like you know the the vienna symphony or whatever have have gone in and created these beautiful string libraries yeah um, yep. but you know it just it still sounds a little bit poxy so if you can just get one you know string on string player to play on top of that suddenly it makes all the difference same with with horns, same with you know all these kinds of things are being are being replaced. For me, I I just I if I was ever doing something, it's always as much as possible live, uh, no click, no auto tune, yeah, cool. awesome. no quantization, no no sample libraries. Yeah. I I really love I. I really struggle listening to a lot of modern music because of the auto tune. And okay. often I've done I've done sessions before where I've gone into to a uh, thing and I actually asked the producer, "Do you mind knocking off the melodyne just while I put down my my track and then you can stick it back on?" Um, yeah, right. Because I just really dislike the way it sounds. Right, gotcha. What about your own original stuff though? From are you writing your own stuff from home? I'm not really too much of a songwriter. Okay. I'm, I'm very much someone who, uh, if someone I collaborate I on you. on songs, yep. um, yeah. So if someone comes with a like an, an idea, uh, yeah, I'll often work with them and you know make that into a song. What was classically called a producer, yep. and these days producers are, are, are much more, you know, they're much more complex beasts than just yep. that. Yep. Um, yeah. So the. Song songwriting, I think, is you've got to have a certain kind of uh, you've got to have something to, to sort of say, yep. and you've got to come from a certain emotional place. Totally. I'm not really someone who um, uh, 
experiences negative mo- emotion a lot. If you know what I mean? Like I'm yep. just not that guy. I've mm. had, had some. <laughs> you make it sound like every songwriter's a writes negative songs. Oh no 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 no! I, think, <laughs> I, know, I know what you're saying. There. I think you've just yep. got to have you've you've really got to be you know. Uh, sometimes songwriting you got to feel everything. I guess. Yeah, so, yep. songwriting is 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 a very cathartic experience yep. for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I and I know a lot of these songwriters, and that really helps them to articulate. What they, what is, you know, immaterial, it really sort of helps them to really sort of work through their, their, you know, what they're, what they're going through. And it's, you know, it is the way that they can get that into the real world and articulate it. I understand. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, once again, I, I love uh, things that, you know, make me feel, um, make, make me feel, you know, really, uh, really fire me up and all that kind mm. of thing. There aren't very many things that make me cry. Yeah, right. But I'll tell you what. If you get if you get the right the right musical situation. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, mm. I'm a I'm a flood of tears. Yeah, that's so, cool, man. I mean, a few off the top of my head. Um, Jeff Beck playing somewhere over the rainbow. Goodness me, you know that that gets me every time. Hearing hearing uh, the show must go on by Queen, which is you know Freddie Mercury singing at the point of death. Yeah, he's so sick that he yeah, can, yeah, yeah. he can hardly stand, but yeah. he's still singing better than almost every other rock and roll singer out there. As soon as you said that, I've got that image of of him in the video, almost saying it was like he's saying goodbye, eh? Yeah, when it gives a yeah, and I think that was yeah, basically the last last time anybody saw him, eh? Not not anybody, but yeah, when yeah. he made, when he made that video, I th- I saw a documentary about it. And um, yeah, that's what they were saying. It's like he's almost saying goodbye. Yeah, because was it like a wink or a oh, or a nod, like right at, the, right at the end? Yeah, that's that's a song called "These Are the Days of Our Lives." Yeah, right. And there's yep. a point in the video where he sort of looks up and says, "I still love you," and then sort of and then f- flashes off to the side. Yeah, yeah. And that was yeah, that was his last appearance in a music video. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, but yeah. he's he's de- desperately sick by then. Yeah, that's right. Actually, something really interesting: his last ever vocal take appears on the record that uh, they released, you know, after he had died mm. called Made in Heaven. But the bridge, I think it's the bridge section of a song called Mother Love mm-hmm. and it's a huge vocal. And as you're listening to it, you're thinking he he literally would, that last record, I believe from what I've heard, he was so sick and, you know, he, he was at the point where if wearing clothes was was painful because he was just so, yeah. so, you know, had so he had pneumonia. Remember, he's yep. he's dying of pneumonia, and um, uh, he sings this massive vocal thing, and then you can and then on the recording, there's this big taiko drum which reverbs, and it's kind of like, oh wow, that was the last thing he ever sang, and a few weeks later, he was dead. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know that 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 will always get me. Mm. You know, I mean, but any any form of real like. Like human excellence at the peak of the art form, you know, watching Buddy Rich play drums. Goodness yeah, me, yeah. that 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 gets me. Watching yeah. um, watching the you know Usain Bolt run, watching the the you know the men's nineteen ninety two Team USA basketball team. Oh right. man, like all these sort of things that are the absolute peak of the art form, they will always reduce me to tears. That's awesome, man. I think on that, I don't think we could end. Better way than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, man. Yeah. Um, 
actually, before I do that sign off, have we forgotten anything? Uh, I'll cut this bit out. So I'll yeah, yeah, no. Let me have a think. Um, is there anything? I mean, you, you kind of had a had a bit of a list of uh, yeah, things there. We've, we've, we've there's probably done, we've gone through all of it, plus, yeah. plus much more. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm pretty. If you, I, I, it was a great chat, you know. So, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I just, I just like to ask. Cause I know, um, yeah, some people have sort of said afterwards. Oh, I wish we'd. Wish we talked about that, or let, let me have a quick let me have a quick think. So yeah. we talked about piano. We talked about me joining, doing bass. We talked about me playing jazz in big bands. We talked about me doing sort of that audio engineering. We talked about Torch Lamond. We talked about me working in the music store. Yep. Um, oh, if you if you want, we can talk about something about that. But that's a, that's another thing. Um, uh, Peter Northcote. Yep. Um, Frankie's world famous house band. We talked about the Widow Birds. We talked about me working for. Dami M, we talked yep. about um, talked about gear, recording, we've talked about yeah. studio stuff, bases, upright, electric, yeah, all the different types of bases. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty comprehensive. Pretty smashed, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll um, I'll I'll rewrap it, rewrap sure. it up. Well, on that, Bobby. Um, Thank you so much for coming out here again. I'm glad we got to get the full story this time. And, and I'm looking at my gear, and I, I don't know if every now and then you've been watching me looking over at my gear, seeing if anything shut off so we oh, don't miss mate. anything this time. <laughs> but I've got a backup as well these days. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I, if I lose one, which I haven't since that day, nothing else has happened. So since then I haven't had a problem. So, yeah, we've got everything today. Very no, good. No losses. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for having me. No, sweet as Bobby. Thanks so much again. And, um, yeah, look forward to seeing what happens with you in the future. And, and um, I'm sure we'll be sitting here doing this again sometime. Thank you, sir. Cheers, Bobby. Have a good one. Later, bro. Summoned from deep beneath by unholy forces unknown to mortal beings. Eight cylinders adorn his crown. Spells.